Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Punch Drunk Love, starring Adam Sandler, Emily Watson, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to wrap up our PTA, whatever you want to call him, PTA, PT Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson. He's got a lot of pseudonyms and, and whatnot. But it's time to wrap up this cast with from 2000. I just had it on map. I can't. Oh, two, I think. Oh, uh, two, oh, three. Oh, two. You're right. Yeah. Uh, Punch Drunk Love. This is. A lot of fun because we just watched it in the other room. This was the first for Rice Smile. I've never seen this before. Other than like, you know, the films coming out in the theaters that, you know, we have to go watch blindly right. when we do. But this usually is the shoes on your foot. Mm-hmm. But this was great. I mean, this was, I didn't read a synopsis. I didn't watch the trailer. I didn't, I had re- recollections of what this movie kind of was. A pseudo romance of swords starting Adam Sandler. But I just got to say, just right off the bat, what a wild film this is. I, there's going to be so much to talk about tonally, acting. Shelley uh, Duvall. <laughs> Popeye. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was this was a wild ride. So first and foremost, I want to raise it to you and thank you for picking this one and letting letting us take this raw dive into it. It's nice to have the shoe on the other foot, and you're welcome, and mm-hmm. I'm glad that we did this. I, I was, to everybody out there, mm-hmm. I think I argued a little bit for Magnolia mm-hmm. and you kind of said, let's do this other one. And I'm glad we went this way because mm-hmm. we would still be watching another hour of Magnolia. Oh goodness. Ooh. Yeah. Which could be fun too, but yeah, um, well, we can come it's back. Fun. <clears throat> we can come back to Paul Thomas Anderson. I think cause I would like to talk about hard eight Magnolia, yeah. of course, and we might want to dive into some of the ones that we're not very fond of, whether that be the master or inherent vice. Mm hmm. Uh, or even Phantom Thread, uh, just to kind of see what, what's different from what we prefer when we get a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Uh, my research this week said that maybe December of this year, he's, he's got, got a, something new coming he's got out. got a new movie coming out. A little out. hush-hush on kind of what that is, though. Um, I did do a little uh, digging on that uh, this week as well. I, I only know that Bradley Cooper's in it. Yeah. Uh, and it's called Soggy Bottom, and yeah. it's about a... It kind of sounded like Boogie Nights, but not porno. It was like an actor trying to make it in the 70s. We'll see how it plays. We'll see how it plays out. I mean, it's. I think if it does, I don't. I didn't get like an ensemble cast vibe off of the description, so it might be a film more like this, which is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's get this started. I think we have some really great questions this week. We're gonna have a good discussion. Let's get started with our flight question. what it reminds me of is uh bernard herman like uh vertigo almost Mm -hmm. not quite as mysterious and and thriller-esque but it sounds like those hitchcock bernard herman scores strange you brought that up because i thought that too when we go through the images that are not on the camera Mm. um whether it's that uh rainbow like fade in and out just miasma of color Mm -hmm. it felt vertigo-y to me too with that dream sequence from stewart very cell bassy (laughs) well said (laughs) yeah Excellent. Hit us with the flight this week. Flight question has to do with, uh, or inspired by Adam Sandler. Um, I asked you to tell me who your three favorite 
actors or performers in the industry would be that came to film as a secondary entertainment career or career. I mean, if you want to go Jimmy Stewart in the military and then come back, I guess I'd go there too. But um, being that Sandler kind of started out in comedy, comedy, yeah, stand up and all that. Mm-hmm. So three, um, man, there's a lot to choose from here. Absolutely. You want me to kick it off or you want to go first? Uh, I'll let you go first. Number three, Natalie Portman. Ooh, okay. Uh, I think in some ways Natalie Portman is a bit of a forgotten player, not through anything that has to do with poor choices. I think it's she's not as active as she might be. I think that's fair. And she's, we can talk about Jane's got a gun, and I have a story for that someday if we ever want to tell it, having been on set one time for that. Well, but did you ever did you ever watch that no, movie? No, I never did. I did. You said it was not good. Yeah, it was just forgettable. It's not her fault. I mean, I'm with you. I like Natalie Portman from Leon the Professional to... Right. Uh, Black Swan. Yeah. So her earliest entry into some other field, entertainment, I'd use that term very lightly here related, was fashion. Mm-hmm. She's a runway model. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets a ton of love for the professional, certainly for Black Swan. She's really good in Closer, even mm. though that may not be a fantastic film. I she's like really one good fourth in- of that or three fourths of that movie. Yeah. But you know, my favorite in the that. Four, the, th- the last fourth I don't like is Clive <laughs> I was going to say, I, you're not really going to vote for any Clive Owen vehicle, are you? But I do enjoy her in that movie, yeah. She's terrific in Beautiful Girls. Yeah. I love that film. And she, for the three scenes she's in there with Timothy Hutton, fuck, she kills it, man. So You, you know what's a kind of a weird kind of quiet movie she was into is the one, uh, did you ever see Brothers with Jake Gyllenhaal mm-hmm. and Tobey Maguire? Mm-hmm. That movie's kind of decent as well. So What was the one she just did, that science fiction one? Oh, um, Annihilation. Oh, my God. That movie's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm going to go Natalie Portman for oh, three. Oh, great choice. Let's hear yours. Would you ever want to do Leon the Professional one these days? I mean, yes. like childhood, like assassin, we could find a cast let's around. Let's just like, do her. Yeah, or just let's uh, do her. The Natalie Portman cast. Yeah. We'd, let's do those three. Let's do. The Phantom Menace. <laughs> just kidding. And no, we, we got to do that for the prequel cast, but. Um, yeah. It, We're Leon not really the, ever going to do the Phantom Menace, are we? I, we'll All see. Right, we'll yeah. see about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, Great choice. Uh, number three for me, uh, Steve Buscemi. Oh, uh, wow. Steve Buscemi before, and maybe he had been acting around the same time, but I know he had this career working for the New York Fire Department for years before. Really? You didn't know this? I did not. No, he showed up on like 9-11 or like afterwards uh, to help out with like the Port Authority and the people down there afterwards. So he had done it, I think all through like the eighties and maybe into the nineties a little bit. How about that? Probably pre reservoir dogs esque. And, uh, it's why uh, there was a movie that came out, uh, last year, the King of Staten Island with, uh, Pete Davidson. Mm-hmm. He plays, a, I think his dad in that or a fire, fire, fire. And the reason they cast him is because he had done that before. How about that? Yeah. So no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's well, my, to him yeah, on that. That's my number three. Yeah. <laughs> Plus I love Steve Buscemi. Oh yeah. He's a, he's great. Good choice. Mm-hmm. Number two? Yep. Irene Dunn. Okay. This can't be a surprise to you, and you no, know no. where I'm going with number one, I'm sure, too. But uh, maybe. Maybe. Irene Dunn, in my opinion, is the best actress to never win that award. Nominated multiple times, and then once she left Hollywood, had a fantastic career in politics and, and serving uh, the greater good for man. But that's not where she started. She grew up on a riverboat that her father ran in a vaudeville type act singing and dancing. And boy, it certainly plays where that sort of abilities are featured when she's in movies that kind of highlight those abilities, Mm -hmm. drama, comedy, 
I think breathtakingly gorgeous, mm-hmm. um, friendly, warm. I love Irene Dunn. And I think she started at the age of like six mm-hmm. and continued to perform on that riverboat sort of gambling on the shores of the Mississippi or up and down the Mississippi till she got to be in her early teens. And then Hollywood found her talents and chose to use them in other ways. I love Irene Dunn. Great choice. Thanks. Number two for me. Yours. Uh, let's see if this will be your number one. I had to put Arnold Schwarzenegger on this list. Uh, Good choice. Starting out, you know, with the bodybuilding career. If you've never seen Pumping Iron, that's an interesting watch in itself. Yep, indeed. <laughs> uh, but he, he had that whole kind of Mr. Universe uh, body before he even considered acting. And it was like, well, let's just get this guy into a movie. And I don't remember what his first is. It Hercules in New York? It is. Oh, that's a that's a strange film. Sally Field. Between that and then to Conan, and then once he gets to Terminator, he's like a bona fide like movie star. Yeah, but I mean, what what can we say about Arnold that we haven't already said about him in the films he's made, the the charisma, uh, his one liners? I mean, he's you call him a good actor, call him a bad actor. You can't deny his like box office power and his importance in Hollywood. So he's my number two. Great choice. Yeah, if we remove Arnold from. Of the film history, there's no Terminator, there's no Total Recall, there's no True Lies. I mean, there's no Conan films the way we see them. Uh, it would just—it's like the '80s action landscape into the '90s is completely different. And there's no great stories of what almost happened and never did with Paul Verhoeven. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I mean, and the like, Crusade. Yep, there's so many things around that. Yeah, Paul Verhoeven made it in this week. We had to check that box. Maybe if I, yeah, Phil, what's his name of? Arnold doesn't do the Terminator. Maybe it is OJ Simpson, and that's just a weird movie now. <laughs> that's crazy. Crazy, right? Mm-hmm. What's your number one? Actor. Okay. Most of you don't know him by his original name, which would be Archibald Leach. But you do know him by his secondary name, Mr. Cary Grant. Mm, nice. Grew up in the circus, as a matter of fact. Uh, it's a fantastic tragic story as a youth uh, mom was inst- basically institutionalized not quite a runaway but not far from it uh, adopted into a circus and in a similar fashion to Irene Dunn I think used those skills to really be able to when he needed to pull off madcap or rough and tumble or semi slapstick could easily do it to this day mm-hmm. I will argue mm-hmm. That is the most versatile actor that Hollywood has ever seen because mm-hmm. he could play it all. Yeah. And did it with grace and grandeur. And he's gorgeous um, and immensely talented and recognized what the moniker of Cary Grant was because it, at in fact, wasn't Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there you go. That's my number one. Really good choice. We've never done a Cary Grant movie on this body. We'll have to kind of wheel some of that into here at some point. I think I just set up the awful truth for us today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't love bringing up Baby, but that warrants talking about it. Howard Howard Hawks production, screwball comedy. And then you're always Cary Grant. I'm a little more Jimmy Mm -hmm. Stewart. We have to do the Philadelphia story. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. So uh, great, great choice. I I actually didn't know about his circus upbringing. Mm -hmm. I'd like a really good like biopic on him, like whether film or miniseries that would be interesting a and e has one or it's maybe it's biography on a and e there's uh-huh. a biography one um the one on him and the one on vincent price are both fantastic mm. um nice. so yeah that's where i would send you to that but i'm sure there's plenty he was always so close uh, albert Bro- uh, broccoli and harry saltzman wanted him for bond but 
Yep. The thing with Cary Grant was he only wanted to do one, and they were like, well, we kind of need the guy to do a few of these if it's going to be a hit. You know what spawned that discussion, too? Huh. North by Northwest. Mm, mm, yeah. They, um, and they said, and then he said, I only want to do one, and mostly you know why? Yeah. My body won't hold well, up. He was older, too, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, they, he was always in the discussion because he just has the look when you think of, like, suave secret agent, it's Cary Grant. Smooth. Yep. Yeah. Excellent choice. Thanks, man. My number one, uh, I'm going to the world of martial arts. Mm. I got to pick Bruce Lee. Ooh, uh, nice. So he he had, he, as a kid, he was in some films, uh, just kind of little kind of bit parts. His dad was involved in the in the industry over there. Um, but then he got into like a lot of trouble uh, overseas. So his parents actually shipped him to the U.S., uh, Seattle, San Francisco area. And that's where he kind of got into, you know, teaching martial arts. And he did that for a real long period of time before he broke in. And I consider the breaking in period of Bruce Lee, 66, and that's the Green Lantern um, as Cato. Uh, Green then, Hornet. Oh, Green Hornet. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Oh, thank you. That's Jesus. <laughs> Green Lantern wishes they had Bruce Lee in <laughs> yeah, that movie. No kidding. Uh, no, yeah, Green Lantern is our Green Hornet as Cato. Uh, yeah. is kind of like his, like, emergence into, like, American, the American uh, television scape. And then he has this very small filmography, and then we all know what, how he passed at such a, like, 30, 32, 33, mm-hmm. and entered the Dragons released after his death. This is the craziest part uh, that I found out in this research was Enter the Dragon came out in 73 or 72. Uh, if released today, adjusted for inflation, Enter the Dragon would do a billion dollars box crap. office business. It was a huge film when it came out, and it only cost $800,000 to make. So its ROI on that back then was like something like 25,000% or something. It was a crazy number. Uh, But people were really, but I also think he really helped popularize that genre here. It was already popular overseas, but his emergence here, I think, cannot be understated. Do you like Kung Fu? The show? With David Carradine? Oh, yeah, I I do. Because you know he passed on that to give it to David Carradine. Oh, really? Yep. What a miss. I like like Kung Fu just fine. Mm -hmm. Bruce Lee would have been a lot better. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the bigger misses I thought, not in his career, but about his career was that B water mm. 30, 30 that ESPN did. God, that was fucking terrible. Um, he has plenty of really good documentaries yeah. you can get into just watching him talk or just watching his workout routine in his backyard. Yeah. The guy was down to like 1.5 or 2% body fat. I mean, he was like razor thin, but so proficient. I mean, he could like. It's that like one inch punch thing that he mm-hmm. describes. It's just so powerful. And his protege were like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and like all these other people that were so inspired by it. Like he even did a film with him at one oh, time. Game of Death. Yep. Game of Death is wild. But Enter the Dragon to me is the pinnacle of Bruce Lee. It's it's amazing. You know, with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar rolling up on you to perform some martial arts technique, you'd have to be about Texas distanced away so he wouldn't get you. Mm-hmm. But it would come from such a long range. Uh, I think you'd probably have time. I've always sort of marveled at his work in Game of Death because he's just so gangly mm-hmm. and angular. If you got it, mm-hmm. it would like being hit with a very, very sharp and hard bamboo shaft. Yeah. But you would see it coming for about 15 minutes before it got there. Yeah, exactly. Rocky might even have a chance to be able to dodge those blows from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because they're longer than the punches that he can't 
seemed to duck yeah, or he, block with his face. Yeah, he, he would just take him to the face. I was gonna say, good choice, man, yeah, Bruce that, Lee. That was good. I thought we were gonna have some of the some of the same on there. You know, I considered the Rock. I mean, his mm-hmm. kind of start in football and then sure. in wrestling, and, and kind of he's such a popular actor uh, nowadays. But it led me down kind of an, another path to think about some other actors. So great, great choices. Robin Williams, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the same comedic career stand up. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up with Sandler because I I want to talk a little about him. Maybe we'll just start right off the gate talking about him because this is so different than anything that we are known for him doing. And I think there's a reason for it. This is just a Jesse uh, hypothesis, but let's kind of get into it. I don't have a lot of clips because remember I was going to like say, Hey, I want to surprise myself with this, but I did find an interesting clip uh, uh, with Taika Waititi talking about this film. So I'll play that to lead us into our happy hour. Punch and glove, this uncomfortable and awkward and energetic and frenetic and it's such a really different, unique comedy. And it also came out of nowhere. When I saw it, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't realize it was Adam Sandler when I first saw it. I was like, oh man, this is not one of these movies. And then it just became something so different and I think it's the best role he's done. How's it work? This is very food, thank you. What's very food? What's that? You just said very food. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to say very good. Maybe you said food because uh, you're hungry. Yeah, and eat. That makes sense. And I love Paul Thomas Anderson's work. You always feel like you're being taken care of as an audience member. And that film is so weird. The entire time you've just got this weird sense of like impending kind of doom and there's drama and there's comedy and it's awkward and it's constantly changing pace. I always watch it at least once a year. It's one of the many films that I find really inspiring. I thought that was interesting, and he used a couple of words in there, uh, awkward, uh, frenetic, and then when describing Adam Sandler, he says, oh, it's not one of these movies, mm. is it? So when I think he refers to these movies, it's Jack and Jill, ba- uh, Big Daddy, Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, uh, Grown Ups, like that kind of like just one-dimensional type of humor, which some of those movies I do like. I mean, you don't, you're not going to like... Waterboy, yeah, yo, yo, I, I like Waterboy, Bobby Boucher, uh, but you're not like going all the way to you know give these films all the tremendous praise and awards for how pro- profound they are. I mean, they're they're specifically supposed to be comedy those films, and I find it interesting when Sandler takes a chance like this in a film like this, and then we see that in like Uncut Gems as well. And he really has the chops to really do roles and parts like this. So my hypothesis that I prefaced a second ago is I think he likes doing films like Punch Drunk Love and Uncut Gems and really testing himself. But I think he likes making people laugh, too. And there's there's nothing wrong with that as an actor. I mean, I think he gets really good joy from making those films that, you know, people find some some humor in, some joy in. I mean, he's a... I've read so many good stories about him as just a good person taking. I've got one in a minute ready. Yeah, for you. people taking his selfies, him playing ball with people in, in in the city. I mean, he. I think he's just a good guy. So I think if he's gonna do this entertainment, he wants to do a little bit for everybody, and I think that's admirable, actually. So they shot the longest yard here, mm-hmm. and so I was on set for about two weeks just as background. Um, when you get to the scene in the film where. <laughs> They approach the guy that's in the hot box. Mm. 
and that foot hits the ground out of the car, that cop's foot, yep. that's my boot, by the way. So oh, there nice, you go. Nice. There's my one moment. But to what you just said and the affection that he shares towards his fans, that happened on day one. Like we had a meeting before it began. He said, look, I promise you there's going to be plenty of time for selfies and autographs and I'll carve it out, but let's not do it all day and we'll set up times where I want to do that. And I promise I'll know most of your names by the time we leave. I'm not going to, like he was so down to earth and so available. Mm -hmm. And he said, the other thing we're going to do is we're going to eat really well on the set and mostly ready for this. We're going to have some fun. Yeah. I think on a movie like, the Longest Yard, which tends to be a little bit more serious in his filmography, mm-hmm. and I use serious with quotes around it, yeah. compared to some of the other, Waterboy, for example, or mm-hmm. um, Big Daddy. Mm-hmm. He still recognizes that at its base level, this is entertainment. Mm-hmm. And with what you said, Michael Irvin was on that set. Um, Neo was on that set. And there were several times where we just played a little bit of basketball. Yeah. On set, because mm-hmm. they had a court there. Yeah. Uh, so I remember walking and Michael Irvin and slapping him a high five every day and like, what's up, playmaker? And I'm not even a Cowboys fan, but that set and that <laughs> experience was so great. That's awesome. And it was because of him. Yeah, absolutely. When he was cast in this film, he was cast in this film because Paul Thomas Anderson chose him to be in this particular movie. Mm-hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson, before either of this week's film or last week's film, which would be Boogie Nights, said... Mm-hmm. Or no, I'm sorry, there will be blood. Two guys I want to work with, one Daniel Day Lewis. Well, if if you make drama, who doesn't want to work with Daniel Day Lewis? Yeah. You know. <laughs> it's like Well, he know. got Daniel Day Lewis because of this film. And then Adam Sandler. Yeah. And sure enough, I don't want to say that he went out specifically to write this part for him, but I'm not venturing too far from yeah, that. It's probably yeah, pretty close to the conversation. Speaks to also the genius of PTA to see and that guy that's in like Billy Madison, mm-hmm. I think there's something there mm-hmm. and then find it. And oftentimes when bands mm-hmm. and actors try to do the miscast or the not what you're expecting, mm-hmm. it is a galactic failure. Aerosmith honking on Bobo. <laughs> Nobody wanted that album and it sucks. Yeah. Um, but occasionally mm-hmm. you get Jay-Z unplugged yeah, and you get genius, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I think in this particular case, Paul Thomas Anderson saw something in there and was able still enough to let Sandler be dramatic, but funny in some places where the drama really is that Greek comedy and tragedy sort of idea. Mm-hmm. It, Cause it cuts the tension a couple times and I was pretty glad it, it does. Happened. Oh yeah. But yeah, so everything you just said, I'm just doubling down on it and you're right. And, um, good for Adam Sandler. One quick question for you. Okay. What's he better in this or uncut gems? Ugh. Uncut gems is a good movie. Yep. I don't know. He might be better in this because yeah. it is such a better balance between the comedy and the seriousness. And I think he kind of locked into something that he's really good at. And it's this kind of awkward situational comedy uh, who would have thought? I mean, yeah. in an Adam Sandler movie, you're used to people farting and this and that, and it, that that makes me laugh, I'll be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like here, it's like, it's perfect. It's like a really 
it's the, these are situations you would never want to be in just because of how awkward they are. Mm-hmm. And I like that, you know, Taika Waititi used that to describe the film because that's instantly how I felt at the beginning. I was like, God, this guy's so weird. And he is, does feels uncomfortable in the space he's in. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I'm glad he took this role. And this is one of my favorite thing about actors that, you know, are in it for the craft and, you know, not for the paycheck. Mm-hmm. Uh that are we get to see another side of the typecast actor like when robin williams gets to go dark whether that's dead poet society or insomnia like there was some treats there uh and it's it's nice to get to see the other side of these act michael keaton mr mom and night shift he's batman you know what i mean like it's 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 you get to see the range of what some people have some people don't have range they're one note um other people do so well said Mm mm-hmm uh, yeah, the beginning of this, uh, we paused, I think, the movie maybe 40-ish minutes in, in and talked a little bit about it. But, man, maybe from the beginning up until, the, like, that moment, it's just, it's a fever pace of of a movie. I mean, he's talking really quick. He's moving around back and forth, not really sitting down or sitting still. He's got his pudding healthy choice scam, which I love. I mean, that might be my favorite part of the movie, which is this... Frequent flyer mile scam he's found through Healthy Choice uh, that if you buy 10 products, you get 500 frequent flyer miles. And he's like, well, you know, if I add it up I, for $3,000, I can get this many frequent flyer miles if I bundle all these products together. Um, and that's going to kind of be his, like, escape at the end. You know what I mean? That was that was pretty cool. But between talking to those reps and then going out and they're delivering a piano for him, which is interesting because we don't even know where that even comes from, Right. Right. It just arrives. Just left on the side of the curb because it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the car accident up front and then his business uh, selling uh, plungers, uh, gourmet pl- plungers. Uh, sure. Designer, <laughs> designer plungers. The designer plungers. Uh, and then his sister's calling him and going back and forth. I mean, it, it felt so chaotic at times and i think that's the point i mean i think these should make you feel a little uncomfortable because it's almost like we're in his brain too uh it's just moving a mile a minute and there's no no chance to breathe really i felt like the first half of this film were really establishing that he's nothing but a number lost among a plethora of numbers Mm -hmm. He's one of the siblings. He has seven or eight harpy cadre sisters that are just insufferable. <laughs> um, the scam that you spoke of that he's building through Healthy Choice, which I love that they're choosing Healthy Choice because as we're going to pull for this guy to find some peace in this strange existence that he's carved out for himself. Mm-hmm. It could have been Swanson's or Kellogg's <clears throat> or General Mills, but they chose Healthy Choice, Yeah, which is what inch eventually that buys him right Mm -hmm. the choice that he makes to be with her and so those numbers the numbers of the cell phone or his home phone and his social security and his credit card as he rattles them off to the sex line that he calls this poor guy is stuck in this terrible environment Mm -hmm. a lot of it is self-directed too he doesn't have to have the office that he has he doesn't have to sell these toilet plungers that have fancy handles with dice on the end and loofah sponges Mm -hmm. like he he's made or forged this strange existence for himself but lost in that existence 
is his significance. And it's almost like it's compounded within a spectrum of infinity of numbers. He's somewhere on the lower half to where it's just another spoke in the wheel. Mm -hmm. The problem is if he's a spoke in the wheel, the rim is bent (laughs) and it doesn't roll properly. Mm -hmm. And so what we get from him time to time are these strange explosions. And honestly, I have to tell you, Mm -hmm. I think most of them are justified. Like, I don't know if I'd go beat the hell out of a bathroom, but we've all been there. Mm -hmm. And from the beginning, whatever office that is, it almost looks like a storage his shed, warehouse, yeah. his warehouse with mm-hmm. just a desk by itself mm-hmm. off on the side. That's not really even in an encamp, like an enclosement. It's just sitting there in the middle of the it's floor. It's just a regular desk. It's yeah. so strange. Yeah. And we get that number right away because he's talking to some phone jockey mm-hmm. at healthy choice mm-hmm. services over what he seems to identify as a marketing mistake. Mm-hmm that he finds an escape to. Yeah. But even that escape is numbers, right, Jesse? It's mm-hmm. $2,000 for a million frequent, frequent flyer. flyer miles. Yep. So what that means is this guy doesn't really have a place that fits. And even where he's managed to carve one out, it's pretty forgettable. Like, do you get fired up about toilet plungers? No. How about loofah sponges? Yeah, no. Pudding? Not no, really. No, not since I was a kid. I mean, I like pudding, but yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly. There's nothing there. Except this girl. Yeah. I like how you use nondescript because even as this one day he decides to wear a suit to work, he almost blends into the paint in the warehouse because it's blue Blue. on the blue and then white on top. So And everybody gives him shit about it. Yeah, they're like, Why are you wearing a suit? He's like, "Ah, I just wanted to just we had the clients coming into this. He's coming with all these lies. That'd be nice to get dressed for work one day, Mm -hmm. which he's right. Yeah. Uh, but he, you can see just how he just blends into the background. Like mm-hmm. he, like he's like doesn't fit in. He's socially awkward, and then his social cues. And this was kind of a big thing for me uh, because, oh, I asked you. I was like, gosh, I wonder if he even has like maybe like mm-hmm. high functioning like Asperger's syndrome because he's he's aware of this scheme. He's good with numbers. He uh, is able to run his own business and live independently. But like when he's around people is when he like flips out. And then when he's pushed too far, then we see the anger aspect come out. So he doesn't quite have those social cues to like interact properly with like regular people. He's weird around them. He's weird around Emily Watson when she first shows up to drop her car off. Um, but you're right. She prevent it provides a, a solace for him, a, a hope on the horizon to, well, maybe she can help make me a little bit better. I think a lot of this is him trying to get better. Uh, and even, you know, having his, uh, brother-in-law and <laughs> get a shrink for him that scene that scene was crazy for me too with this dinner that he was uh has to go to with his with his family and they're you're right insufferables being nice <laughs> let's talk about the meet cute where he comes into contact with lena emily watson yeah handled really well by her too by the way mm-hmm. she shows up in a Geo Metro, oh, I man. think, of all cars. Oh, I was like, when's the last time I've seen that car? I remember the Geo logo. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And she claims that it has engine problems. And it probably does because when you hear her turn it off, I guess the gerbil and the rubber band are on their last legs because the engine sucks. Obviously, it does. We're going to come to find out that this is all a ploy later in the film, but she just happens to be there. Her car's about to crap out, and she asks him... Hey, do you know the mechanics? He's like, not really. Would you mind keeping my keys and keeping an eye on my car? 
until it's ready to be picked up. And instantly, he is smitten with her. Mm -hmm. Even in his very awkward manner, as she's walking down the alley, I think it's an alley, really, Mm -hmm. towards the street that just had the piano dropped off and had this terrible car flip over, over, I don't know, some sniper manhole cover. I don't know what the hell. That that was strange. Weird. It just like blew up and then like, or blew a tire and just rolls down the road. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's kind of checking her out. And she turns around, I think, to acknowledge that, and then he buries himself in the 15th cup of his already probably dry thermos full of coffee. Mm -hmm. And then runs back into the shed and hides behind the brick wall as to not be seen anymore. Mm -hmm. You can tell he's spun out. And the only reason that he's spun out, because mostly everyone that he interacts with is weird, and he's weird with them. Mm -hmm. Why this one is having such an impact is this is something new. We're talking about affection. And for a kid that's been ridiculed and we're going to find out like in the next scene mm-hmm. when he goes to this horrible birthday party yeah, with one of his 15 Damn. fucking awful sisters yeah, that mom always said that he was the gay boy or whatever mm-hmm. term they, yeah. as he's walking in, yeah. we're inside there and you hear this, his family just trashing him mm-hmm. and he has to practice coming in three times. Yeah. What about that entrance? What do you think about that? Well, that's that's like obsessive compulsive disorder, like yeah, yeah cycles of three. I, I know about that, mm. but uh, yeah, you're right. He almost he has to kind of come in and like is, or it almost seems like if it's not that, it's like, do I come in now? I don't know. Maybe I'll let them give them a chance to stop that. Oh, they're still going. I'm gonna come in now, but they're still going on about it. Chitty chatty, chitty chatty. Uh, but what I found interesting about that, and then it happens later in the restaurant, which is when en- any of these things from his like childhood or past are broken are brought up, he flips out. Yeah. It, then comes the punch aspect of of the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think there's something there? I mean, they don't go into too much detail about what it is, but something happened that has kind of turned him into this thing. Yeah, and yes, mm-hmm. I'm glad they don't because I think. This is still trying to be somewhat comedic, black comedy, but there's some comedic moments mm-hmm, in there. Mm-hmm. If we get too much into his background, then it's going to turn this into rot drama. Yeah. And there's enough of that that just happens already because it's so awkward and he is. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad they don't go there. Yeah. If you grew up in that family, Ooh. I would imagine that there's been plenty of instances. Mm-hmm. Or you might have something that was anxiety-induced because you grew up with a nest full of harpies. His sisters, Seven sisters suck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They are, they're terrible. Mm-hmm. And being the only guy in there, um, you know, he's been suffering their slings and arrows shots for decades, his whole life. Yep. I, the guy can't even put on a suit. Mm-hmm without being ridiculed by his sisters. Don't you think they would want to celebrate, hey, you look good? No, yeah, it's not that type of atmosphere. It's... Are you using the head and shoulders that I gave you? You have dandruff. Oh, my God. Did that you brush was... your teeth? Yeah, that was the worst. Yeah. Are you gay? Why, Do you have a boyfriend? Why would you, Fuck all of why you. Why would you bring any of that up? Like, God, they're just hateable. Even just around yeah, your uh, presumed loved ones. Uh, no, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that's... Uh, what did you say? You're glad you were an only child? I said I was glad I was an only child. <laughs> I was like, gosh, I, I wouldn't put up with that bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh that, that was rough, and then 
He's like, um, but then we, he admits, he's like, I know there's something wrong with me. I had these outbursts. I'm got these anger issues. I don't like myself sometimes. And he's like, I need a therapist. And as he's confessing to a doctor, but unfortunately the doctor is a, the dentist, the dentist. Yeah. Though that's where I think we get some comedy. You know right. what I mean? That I, the black comedy, I think is the preferred, uh, genre of this particular film Yeah, because it, yeah, it walks that, that fine line really good. But then we follow that up with this uh, phone call to, uh, well, he's trying to do more with this, this, I almost said snack wells, the healthy choice. Uh, you remember snack wells? Sure, I just said, what's, is there a difference? Well, it's the same, same kind of packaging. It's the same like green and, green and white, yeah. brown. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, but he's trying to get more on the healthy choice coupons. And then he sees this like uh, dial in like sex hotline ad. Yeah. Back in the day, you'd have to call these numbers and it's like some crazy thing. It's like two ninety nine a minute. Is that what she said? For the first 30 and then $1.99 after that. I think like 60 plus $70 just for the yeah, the first half hour. And they set him up and he takes the bait. Mm-hmm. Like we're sitting there like, don't give your social. Oh, yeah. They, no, I hang up. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. But he's able to rattle his credit card number off, his street address, his social, all just the numbers, like just lost in the numbers. And to the people on the other end of the sex call line, He's also a number, a monetary amount. Mm-hmm. They don't give, which, look, I don't think a sex line worker is really worried about your well being. You just represent a cash sum for them. And even that conversation is pretty awkward. But you know what it is? It's it's sweet awkward. Mm-hmm. He's not cursing or saying he wants to do this debaucherous act with her. It's he's desperately trying to break the ice. And what I kept thinking. It was the second time, too, for me. So, I mean, I knew where it was going. Mm-hmm. Is he practicing with this woman so that he'll know how to break the ice with the other gal who dropped her car off? Oh, I, I wondered. I wondered why he had made this call, and I, I think maybe you're right. Uh, is Yeah, it's either practice or he's lonely and he's just kind of taking a chance. Yeah. Wants some companionship, but he's afraid to go there with Geo Girl. Uh, so he kind of takes a dive and it turns into the worst possible situation for him. Mm-hmm. I think it's e- either one of the two. I mean, he's doing this for something, maybe to work on his social skills a little bit or just how to converse, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this just goes completely because he's not even in it to like, she's trying to ask him, we're like, are you hard? Are your pants off? Are you touching or, yourself? Yeah. Right? Are you doing this? He's like, no, no, I'm no, no. Just hanging out in the kitchen talking to you. I'm just hanging out over here and just like, he's not even like doing the acts of what you would be doing on the phone here. Mm-hmm. Until it turns into like the next day, this well, same- she talks him into it though. Which part? Oh yeah, at the end, yeah. So even that's really awkward too, because as soon as this guy's able to stand up for himself, and that's also part of it for him, mm-hmm. because he doesn't stand up for himself in some general elements in his life. Yeah, that's what causes the outburst. Mm-hmm. And there's a big moment, and I really want to talk about it when he calls his sister and they have that moment on the phone. And I think you and I are both ready to stand up and high five each other when it happened. <laughs> yeah, but. Once that occurs, things turn around for him. Yeah. But this poor guy is just getting steamrolled by everybody. And as I said, he's lost in the numbers. That's all he is for everybody. He's the eighth sibling. Mm-hmm. He's the 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 money on the end of the credit card. He's just a number, a nondescript spoke in the number wheel, and it just turns and turns and turns, powered by everybody else's engine. Mm-hmm. As soon as he turns it over and he becomes the driver, it changes. But even back to the sex fall, the sex call conversation. 
where do you live? What do you do? And he starts giving away some pretty personal information that probably isn't the best thing you should do with someone like that. We promise this is confidential. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to get that back out of her. What do you do for a living? What do you, where are you? And I'm just up the road from you. Mm -hmm. You live in LA. uh, Yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not true at all. But all of that changes because we fade out on that scene with him sitting at the same sort of desk that we saw him yeah. at the beginning of the film in isolation. Mm-hmm. And then there's that very weird image, which I want to ask you about. Okay. We leave the scene with the girl telling him, okay, it's time to pull it out and, and take care of business here. So let me walk you through this, this as you jerk off. Yeah. The lamp. Mm. Do you notice the lampshade? Super crooked. And I thought, is that trying to look phallic? No, that doesn't. That's too on the nose. But we fade out on a lamp that's on the nightstand, I think next to his bed, or a small end table in the middle of the bedroom somewhere. And the lampshade is twisted and off-center. And I really thought that Paul Thomas Anderson choosing to leave this pretty important moment, especially, yeah, to the film. See, it's right. It's crooked. Mm -hmm. What's what's it next to? Let me see that again. End table, like the coffee table. That's an interesting image, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, that's it's done purposely. Either like your his life is this out of flux, or this act is gonna now propel it out of even more out of flux. Now it's gonna disjoint his life even more. I mean, on the nose level, that's illumination mm-hmm. and the crooked use of illumination, mm-hmm. and maybe that's what the film is saying. We're trying to give you all right now. Yep. Good image. We should put that on the Instagram snapshot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is so then the film takes a, just a crazy turn here. She calls him the next morning and then uh is like, "Oh, this is my real name and remember that apartment I talked about? I need money for it." And he's like, "Oh, I don't know. I don't I can't afford that. But you said you had a business. You said you got this. You said you got that." And he's like, "Oh gosh, what a mistake this was." And he's like, "I'm oh, sorry. I like I can't I can't get involved." And then throughout the day, she just keeps calling him and calling him saying like, "You don't want to say no to me. You don't want to say no to me." I'm going to tell your girlfriend I'm going to tell you, I don't have a girlfriend or this and that. And he's just, he, to the point where he's just like, I'm hanging up now. And when she calls back that, like last time, she's like, you're going to regret this. You just set forth like a whirlwind of bullshit on you. Didn't you find that sad when she calls him in the morning and he's so happy to have someone call him and just tell him to have a good day? Well, yeah, I kind of thought it was going to go that way where I was like, oh, maybe these two are going to meet up. Maybe there was some type of connection. Maybe she felt sorry for him. And then it, no, it turns into a scam. I mean, these are scammers. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman, and then they're like just trying to just scam people out of money. He's so happy to get her call because someone actually gave a damn about him first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Took the time to like, so you get that there's a wanton, there's a wanton acceptance, and a, a wanton a need, yeah, from everyone. There's mm-hmm. he just wants this companionship. Certainly not going to get it from his harpy sisters. Mm-hmm. It's probably pretty tenuous at the place where he works. Again, though, well, he's not going to get it from his harpy sisters. He's afraid to get it from Emily Watson, and he's willing to dip a toe in on the sex line because Georgia it is, from Georgia because it is so ambiguous and mysterious. Oh, well said. Yeah, it's almost protected in ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Jesse, that's good. Yeah, I like that. So it's it, he's kind of just going through through the tests and and whatnot. But what this kind of sets off, and this is interesting because this almost kind of. The Philip Seymour Hoffman angle and this scamming, and, and he's great in this. I mean, he's barely in the movie. Again, yeah. And he just shows up and just, like, steals the that, that phone conversation scene. It's great. 
uh, it almost it's like a Coen Brothers plot. Oh yeah, it's almost like the Big Lebowski, mm-hmm. just like victim of circumstance, or just like we're gonna screw this person, we're gonna send some goons to go like beat him up and whatnot. Like it really reminded me of like a '90s Coen Brothers like B plot of the, one of their movies. It's really well said. You're right. It, yeah, it does. Yeah, uh, but the whole time this is happening, I can't stress this enough. Like Matt, I was just like, this isn't a thriller or like a horror film. But man, I was like visually, and maybe because I'm just being stimmed by so much happening here, and part of it's the score mm-hmm. is just monotonous, uh, a good monotonous. And then he's bouncing from the piano, trying to figure out how the hell does this thing work, and it's not even a piano; it's like a almost like a harpsichord, or it's it's got a what does she call it? The harmon harmonix. I'll, I'll I'll look it up, but it's a different type of piano. It operates almost kind of like an accordion. It, yeah. it has to breathe into play. It has it has like almost like like a bagpipe, so to speak. Uh, he's bouncing from that to his pile of pudding to his business to his sister to Emily Watson, and I'm just like, oh my god! And then the phone's ringing too. It's so hard to focus on like the different things, but it's like it's it's out of, it's not a detriment to the movie. It's just like it it put me out of like a comfort zone, and it made me feel like the character. Like it made me feel like wow, this is what it's like to be in this guy's brain for like a day. It's just like so. To quote Taiko Atiti, frenetic is the perfect word for it. It's just wild. If this film was able to do that to you, mm-hmm. that's pretty high praise. Mm-hmm. You should raise it up on yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. If that's able to spin you out like that, mm-hmm. and you're not light in the film viewing experience, well, maybe because saying something. Well, I'm trying to pay attention to what's happening first, but then to the, all the kind of external factors too. Jesse brought up the score there, and um, I imagine a lot of you have not seen this film which you probably should check it out. Where did you get it? Um, how'd you stream it or did you rent it or how'd you get this? On YouTube. Rented it's on, YouTube. It on YouTube. You got it on YouTube. Okay. This score is in the entire film mm-hmm. and every bit of dialogue that happens, you're going to have to sift through underneath or through the score that's happening. And there are times when the score's volume is elevated to match the frenetic or anxious nature of the scene. And there's times where it's smoothed down, like the bit that you rolled out at the beginning mm-hmm. when we first started the flight. Mm-hmm. That's in some of the more calm moments in the movie. So they set the score to the... (laughs) The pace. That's going on in his head. Yeah. And that's a really nice way to accompany this with the music. And then the choices are also very interesting. I'm sure we're going to get to that. Well, I would almost say turn on the subtitles so you can kind of hear, but that almost adds another level of complication to the viewer to have to (laughs) read and focus, and then you're still being spun out. That's a good point. Uh, (laughs) It's just a while. It was a while. It's it's very unlike Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood where things are slowed down and the camera moves from scene to scene and we're with the characters and we kind of, you know, can focus on them. This is like taking all of that and then like, putting it on puree in a blender and we're just like, just like pick up what you can. Mm-hmm. But it, it, that was good. It, it reminded me a lot of, and I know these films aren't for everybody, but like the French new wave of making films, like whether that was Truffaut or especially Jean-Luc Godard, they made films like this where they're just, it's so hard to grasp what is happening that you almost have to watch a second time, but when the film ends, you're like, Jesus, I don't want to watch that a second time. Mm-hmm. The, those films like really spin you out in a way that this film does. Yeah. That is high praise. I just brought up two very influential filmmakers from from that particular era of filmmaking. So reference an entire subgenre of film. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. 
Okay. And, a ro- and like, what's a romantic comedy? Kind of. Mm-hmm. You brought up that piano mm-hmm. and Emily Watson later in the film is going to be able to give that piano its proper name. She knows what that name is. Now, the reason that this piano is left on the side of the road is the harpsichord or the accordion bagpipe element that's underneath the uh, keys. Harmonium. There you go. Mm-hmm. Harmonium. Doesn't work. So instead of taking it to the dump, it's just discarded. So I'm asking you a question. When I say discarded and left on the side of the road, am I talking about yeah, right. Barry or am I talking about the harmonium? Yeah, you might be talking about both. <laughs> he picks it up and brings it in and puts it on his desk in the office. And as the movie progresses, we see him start to kind of play with the keys a little bit. And then anytime things get sort of crazy, he finds some solace in there. Mm-hmm. And a big moment occurs when he pulls out, of all things, some duct tape. And puts it back together, mm-hmm. which allows it to function properly. That's crazy. This is a big moment because as he's repairing it to function properly, the metaphor that the film has created, which the harmonium is Barry, needs to be repaired to function properly. Mm-hmm. There's only one person in this movie who knows what the real name of that thing is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Lena, the yeah. harmonium. Yeah. You and I have already forgotten. That's the how harmonium. disregarded Barry is. Yeah. Her purpose then because maybe she's the only one that gets him, Mm -hmm. is to fix him. Well, let's talk about that, too, because then that goes to their first date. She asks him, like, would you like to have dinner with me the other night? Like, she's like, she asks him out. Doing all the hard work, and he just has to say yes. I mean, she's so into him for some strange reason. Maybe it's the mystery of everything we're talking about right now is intriguing to her. Uh, But they finally go out on this date, and it's going along, and he's telling some crazy stories, and she's interested, but then she kind of goes there with him, and then he's like, excuse me, I got to go. And he just goes and like punches out the bathroom, so to speak. Uh, I thought that I thought that was a really good sequence uh, to kind of show the both sides of him because then the date has to end because he gets thrown out. She sees that kind of dark side to him, but she's okay with it. She kind of knows a way to like qualm like those angers and those outbursts of his. But then when the night ends, he just like, okay, I'm leaving. I need to go and... A kiss on the cheek. I'm surprised it wasn't just like a handshake. Mm-hmm. That probably would have been better. But then he like instantly kind of sees like those errors in his ways when she calls him on the way out. I thought that whole sequence from date to coming back and going into kissing her, I thought was a real good moment of growth for him. That awkward goodnight kiss is a semi-hug, handshake, kiss on the cheek, even though she tries to give him her mouth he's too quick and misses her mouth and kind of hits her cheek anyway. It's a disaster. Mm -hmm. And if that's not enough, the cherry on top is bye-bye as he walks away. And he is just berating himself down the hall. You fucking idiot. Bye-bye. Who says bye-bye? You know, just giving himself the business on that. She's off to Hawaii. She's heading off for business to go to Hawaii. And what we've come to find by this moment is the party that Jesse and I had referenced earlier, one of his sisters really wanted him to attend this birthday party because she was going to bring her friend mm-hmm. and she was going to try to play matchmaker. Well, lo and behold, her friend is Lena. Lena. Yep. So we're starting to see there's a serendipitous effect between the two of them. I also really like the part that you said, though, too. So in mm-hmm. this serendipitous effect, it's mostly fueled by her efforts, isn't it? Yeah. Because after this awkward goodnight kiss, she calls him up and says, don't you want to come and really tell me goodbye again? That's not quite what she says. Mm-hmm. But 
you and I not being Barry, I hope would decode that as like, oh, she really wants me to come tell her goodbye. Yeah. Which that's loaded and would be implied as such. Mm-hmm. You didn't come over to like, you know, give me a high five and slap me. Like, it's like, come over here. Yeah. Okay, so he goes over there. He gets lost in the hallways. He runs around for a while. Can't remember where Doesn't he's he, going. Like, kick the door. Like goes out the emergency exit. Almost walks into traffic. Yeah, <laughs> it's a disaster. It's pretty good. And then finally finds her room. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. get the knock. She answers. And we get man. What's really sweet, and mm-hmm. this is what this movie's able to do so well, is they temper some of that awkwardness with sweetness. Mm-hmm. There's a nice kiss between the two of them, and then it just sort of breaks down into an embrace. But not over sweetness. Well, because he's so awkward about it. Yeah. Like you're not je- like choking me out with cotton candy sweetness. Mm-hmm. So it's a kiss and then like a legit kiss that's shared by both. And then he just kind of hangs on to her for a while and she reciprocates, doesn't she? Yeah. It's a big moment. Mm-hmm. Big time. Yeah, this is huge for him and huge for her too. Is it acceptance? Uh, from who? Of him? It's acceptance of her from him, right? Yes. And you know what else is really great about it? Mm-hmm. The fact that it doesn't end up in the bed draws oh, a distinct delineation between him and Georgia the girl on the phone. It's even better, yeah. I need to let everybody know this is an 88-minute film. Quick. Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel like 88 minutes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, there were times, if anybody's listened to the Patreon, with episodes, oh, I don't know, one through six of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I felt like 47 minutes felt like all of two hours. <laughs> yeah, you're it right. was a grind. Yeah, you're right. This didn't. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that happens, but there's also, um, beats beat-wise, there's a lot that happens in this film. And there's plenty of space to let the actors really carry the emotion or moment of the scene. And somehow, they're able to fit it into 88 minutes. It's a pretty remarkable editing job. Really good. I'm... Um- just want to talk about this real quick because you know i know you i know you pretty well uh and yeah, you know yeah. types of types of movies and stuff you like uh so i'm really i'm guess i'm not surprised i guess i'm more intrigued on you're giving the film a lot of praise uh but it is i i almost want to like define this film as like a strange film like it's bizarre at times it's weird in its delivery and those scenes where he's bouncing from the harmonium uh the phone calls that this it's just like it's it's wild like what about that uh in any other film would probably turn both of us off and just be like yikes like what the hell's like there's this is t- too busy what about it in this it makes it palatable is it's, it is it adam sandler or is it paul thomas anderson's you know authority over script and and direction um sandler's good in it but Sandler is not always good for me. Mm-hmm. I like Strange. I really like Strange. Uh, Taxi Driver is kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Raging Bull is kind of strange. Yeah. We could make the case that Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood are also semi-strange films. David Lynch is 100% strange. Right? Yeah. I'm glad you brought him up because I think this is the answer to the question that you just asked okay. me. Okay. I'm I'm good with Strange because it's going to be unique and a, a different viewing experience. It mm-hmm. still needs to be a story. Gotcha. Okay. You still need to complete some semi-linear mm-hmm. beginning, middle, and end story. Memento's a strange film, yeah. right? So that has a begin, an end, a beginning, and then a middle. <laughs> so, exactly in black and white, yes. in real time, yeah. and in present time, yeah, and past time. Mm-hmm. Inception's a strange film. Mm-hmm. So 
I love, I, I really do. I love strange. Mm-hmm. Unbreakable is a strange film. I could go on and on and about strange. Sure, sure, yeah. It just has to be a complete story. Like if you just want to go, mm-hmm. I'm make something weird because mm-hmm. it's weird. Then you get, well, some of that French nouveau shit that you talked yeah, about. That's true. I think that's my answer. Oh, that's a good answer. Do you buy that? Is that, are you the same way? No, I buy that. You know, if the film's bizarre like this and we don't get the linear story and we go in crazy directions, like I can roll with it if as long as I'm, you know, having a good time watching it and it's kind of, you know, spinning me out. Like that's such a weird feeling to feel while watching a film. Like a film's almost kind of supposed to like kind of keep you in like a, a space of fiction. But like watching something like this, I'm like, wow, I feel like I'm like one of the characters like with that, like I think I've told you the last time I watched Apocalypse Now, like I literally felt like I was in Vietnam with those characters and it was wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think what's doing it for me in this one, like I already know PTA is like a very proficient director and he's in charge of his writing and his craft. I think I'm just very intrigued by Sandler in this film and like how different it is than other things I've seen him in. I mean, I'm like my focus is gravitated toward the decisions he's making, the choices he's making the glimpses of comedy and then the outbursts of anger. I think it's a very fascinating and that's keeping my attention. I'm into all the other stuff, but like my eyesight is just like on him, which is interesting. If you're in control of the story, I think you can do strange and it comes across, it comes across as interesting and is paid off later. So mm-hmm. let me defend that. Okay. Yep. Let's take what you talked about earlier, the healthy choice coupon, double down two for one on Tuesdays, million flight miles, yeah. whatever. Right. Yeah. And let's take that harmonium. Mm-hmm. It's odd that after he's just seen this car flip over 16 times in the middle of the road, the thing that he really fixates on is this broken piano left at the curb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also really interesting that when Lena shows up to drop, quote unquote, drop her car off, we're going to find out later. Mm-hmm. We'll do it now. Like she, This was a, just a chance for her to meet him because mm-hmm. she saw him in a picture of her sister's and of his sisters and their friends and she liked him. So this was a chance to meet him. She almost hits the piano coming in. She has to swerve around the piano Mm -hmm. to get in. So it's in the way Mm -hmm. this broken piano is in the way of her getting to him. Think about what I just said. So that's set up beautifully well. And as the harmonium gets fixed and she recognizes the beauty that it holds or understands it, we're not talking about just this strange piano. It serves a larger purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's set up and paid off mm-hmm. now to the frequent flyer miles. Yeah. They're also set up and paid off because that's how the hell the two of them are going to go get out of here and how he's going to be able to spend time with her on her job. I have one more question to ask you and then we'll get to Popeye. Yeah. Let's <laughs> Cause, yeah. Then we'll get that's to, also weird. It's very strange. The title of the film's punch drunk love. Yeah. Right? I think we get the punching from his outbursts and you know, all that we get the love from this pseudo love story that we're getting now is the drunk. Maybe, you know, maybe Barry Egan should have been a little more hard drinking or, or, or whatnot. And we kind of see that, or is the piano, the drunk aspect of this film? it's on the fritz. It's very, it sounds out of tune as, you know, a drunk person, you know, when they talk, they, they're, they're mumbling words and this and that. And maybe, maybe I answered my own question was, I was trying to figure out what's the drunk aspect of this film with the title. I mean, that's the one element that doesn't quite make sense. And maybe it is the piano. You just fixed something that's been a huge problem for me. Okay. That's the one thing I don't like about this film. I think it should be called dizzy or spun Mm -hmm. or any number of these other titles or he needs to be hard drinking 
right? Right. Yeah. Punch drunk, if we're talking about in the boxing sense, has been you've been so pummeled that you can't quite figure out what's what's up. And I guess the pummeling nature would be what everyone does to Barry. Eh, I don't want to have to work that hard on the title. It's a little too cerebral to really kind of work, except is the drunk part mm-hmm. the reference to that harmonium? And if you want to be honest with it, that harmonium is probably more saloon-related than it is ballroom-related. Yeah, because it's a, it's a pump organ is what it is. Right? Yep. A pump organ. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I love that. Yeah. So you might have given, I think you answered your own question, and that might be the best explanation of a title that's troubled me for some time okay. and since we started. I, that was what I was going to say is I don't like the title, but you've maybe fixed piece of that. Okay. So thanks. Yeah. Cause no, cause I, I kind of think of it as like three separate words that mean three different things for this film. Yeah. Cause he's not, I mean, punch drunk love. He's not drunk on the love. It's almost mm-hmm. punch fixed love. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. The, but you're right. The piano is important if the piano. And then like you said, over time, over uh, fixing and assistance and care by film's end. I mean, he's like determined to like learn something on this piano, which is interesting. Oh, that final bit, the mm-hmm. final shot in this film. Oh, it's great ending. We'll get to it. But let's talk about Popeye. I mean, okay, let's so talk about after the Coen Brothers-esque uh, B-plot of these guys, they come and like kidnap him and make him... five. They only want $500, which is so stupid. I, I mean, know. It costs that much to drive from Utah to California. Yeah, Provo to L.A., <laughs> Uh, yeah. and uh, he gives them that and they're like well we know where you live and he just like takes off running and that's a nice kind of little chase sequence and he like th- he does that like leap over like the guardrails and mm-hmm. keeps running I mean he's just like so like in, in, in into it that he goes and does the rest of his little coupon scan they tell him six to eight weeks and he's like god dang it and that almost sets him off again but he's like well I'm gonna go I'm just gonna get go get away like they're they're looking for me they know where I live I'm going to Hawaii and then we get this like Popeye-esque montage. And when I say Popeye, I'm talking about the Robert Altman 1982 or 1980. Mm-hmm. I think 82. Williams and Shelley Duvall. Robin Williams, Shelley Duvall. And music by Harry Nielsen. Like, I don't think I'm making that up. That's that's real because this song was written by him, sung by Shelley Duvall, and it plays over this whole montage. I'm going to do my best Shelley Duvall impression here, and I don't need to sing this well because she sings it terribly, and that's part of the beauty of how that works in the film. He needs me, he needs me, he needs me, he needs me, he needs me. Like well, It's so off-tune. You'll never forget it in the movie because it's like 20 minutes long. Shelley Duvall <laughs> singing her, at that point, unrequited love towards Popeye. And of all of the choices in this film that have been built around the score. 1980. What a crazy choice to use this for, right? She did that movie the same year as The Shining. The Shining. What a crazy year for Shelley Duvall. (laughs) How much cocaine was on the sets that Shelley Duvall was in in 1980? Oh, my God. She's going to make Scarface look like a a bit player, huh? Popeye soundtrack album by Harry Nielsen. What a crazy movie. And then you're right. So we followed this song from that film in this film as this unrequited love ballad between the two in the middle of that, we get this phone scene that we, we alluded to earlier where he calls his sister and he was like, can you give me the number Lena's number? You know where she's staying in Hawaii? He's like, don't you give me her number. He's like, I'll, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> like, he finally lets her have it. And that's Matt, Matt and I were probably like, yes, finally he's sticking up for himself. He's finally given his sisters a piece of his own mind. And is he the baby in that family? Yeah. Yeah. So he's just had his life thrown upside down by, I love the the muscle that the sex call workers send out. It's like three meth heads 
for alabaster meth heads, um, you know, LDS on uh, Meet Heisenberg coming to, you know, regulate. Well, give me a break, right? Your name is Lebowski, Lebowski. Like, it's that guy. <laughs> it is that guy. <laughs> and, you know, they come to rip him off for a whopping, I think 750 is what the Georgia girl asked, but he's only can take out 500 at a given day. So then I think they're okay with 500 mm-hmm, bucks. Yeah, there are. Small time hoods here. And... Like Jesse said, his plan is to use his frequent flyer miles from the healthy choice scam that he's identified to go and hang out with Lena for two days, <laughs> two days yeah. in Hawaii. Take you half a day just to get just there. Just to get there. Yeah. So he gets there and has no idea where she is. So Je- then we get to the point where Jesse is. So he's in the middle of a parade on the street with tons of background noise again, having more. Again, just overstimulating mm-hmm. what's happening on the screen. It's exactly an overstimulated periphery. Mm-hmm. And he's having this conversation with her and he says, I need her number. And she's like, yeah, I need a number. Why do you want to know? And starts giving him a rash of bullshit. And he finally, for the first time, says, Give me your goddamn number. I'm going to fucking... And he just lets her have it. And you and I were like, it's way, way overdue. Way past due, yeah. And he gets her number. Mm -hmm. And then he tracks her down. At the same time, he needs me, he needs me. And that's going the whole time, (laughs) everybody. The whole time. Except for maybe the part where there's the periphery of the parade, which is interesting. Think about this. Mm -hmm. As soothing, and let's use the term soothing here with some respect okay as soothing as shelly duvall as scored by harry Nielsen, harry nielsen's he needs me is the anthem to him finding lena mm-hmm. when he's on the phone with his sister yeah. that anthem goes away and we get the fucking background noise of that parade which is maddening because he can't hear her she Chaotic. can't hit so mm-hmm. interesting how they're using sound to sort of represent what's going on with regarding his uh, state of anxiety in his mm-hmm. mind mm-hmm Gets the number after he drops the hammer on his sister long overdue and it goes back to he needs me, he needs me, and they end up together and in the sack and we fade out with a hilarious bit where we are tied on. Okay, so let's do one thing. PTA does a great job of them. That shot, the meetup shot. Meeting, and so it's in a like a hallway or a corridor. It's the poster of the movie. Backlit by the beach and all of these people carrying on in the beach and this bright, colorful affect. And then a million silhouettes of people just going right past them. Man, it looks fantastic. Uh, it's gorgeous. That doesn't have the people in it, yeah. um, but that's, yeah, the movie poster is essentially that. Okay, so that's a really, really, really? interesting, gorgeous shot. Well, he's worked with, I wanna, let's see for a second. Oh. Boogie, well, you, Heart Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk. There will be blood. Inherent vice. Oh, he didn't do the master. No, he's done most most of Paul Thomas Anderson. The, the same uh, Robert Ellsworth is the cinematographer. So perfect choice. Yeah, this movie's beautifully shot. I mean, there's a lot of great lens flare. I was like, is J.J. Abrams somewhere over there? There's a lot of blues flashing in between this and that. So the lovers' embrace is then met with them in bed talking about she wants to eat his cheek because it's so cute and he wants to smash her face because it's so beautiful. And they're playing with each other and this kind of violent back and forth. Well, you forgot about the Popeye silhouette that closes on their hands. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I was I thought that came after this, but of course yeah. it wouldn't or else they wouldn't be in the bedroom. Yeah. Um, the song ends with the same way that that fades out in Popeye, which is fisheye 
angled down to the grasping of two hands as he needs me finishes. I want to know more. Like, is yeah. is that like his favorite movie? And <laughs> he's just paying homage to it in this. Like, that was like a. Is that maybe the first film he ever worked on? Well, that was weird. It's almost like we both kind of just like figured that out, like in the viewing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we like put the song and then that moment together of like Popeye. Crazy. Yeah, it it works though. It absolutely works. She's it works. not a good singer, and it's not really all that pleasant. It works better in this movie than it does in Popeye. <laughs> okay, you're right. It does. <laughs> Finally, we found a good place to use Shelley Duvall's vocal stylings. Okay, so we finish up with our nice piece mm -hmm. in Hawaii, and it's back to the grind and the the thugs chasing him down in California. Well, they get in a car accident, or they cause a car accident with them. And On the plane, she says, can I come home and stay with you? And they mm -hmm. pull into his apartment, and the same truck with full those thugs wrecks into his car and causes her forehead to bleed. Mm -hmm. This is big because now we've already set up that he's able to stand up for himself, and he walks out of his car furious yeah. and kicks the almighty hell out of all four of them. Yeah. Crowbar fist feet, the whole nine drops the hammer on each one of them and then stops just short. This is important. Mm -hmm. Breaks the glass in the truck. The ringleader of the truck is hiding in the coward back. in the back yeah. seat. And he hands him the crowbar and takes his girlfriend to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is where things get a little crazy though, right? Yeah. But no, that's a great that's a great scene. I mean, he goes full John Wick on these guys yeah. and <laughs> yeah. just hands them their asses. But yeah, you're right. It shows restraint. It shows that like mm -hmm. part of her is like leaning off on him. And normally he probably would let this guy have it as well. I mean, he wouldn't be able to stop himself. But in this regard, he's a, he's able to. And then he sees the kind of quest at hand is I got to get her to the hospital. She's bleeding from the head, has a head injury now. Maybe he has a head injury. Maybe that's why he is the way he is. Maybe it's a brain injury that he has. I don't know. I just bring this up because I, I work with this stuff every day in my job and I kind of just see kind of like how these people react and they lack the social skills sometimes based on their disability. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we're reading too much into the movie, but you're right. This makes the movie really chaotic because she's getting attended to and he's like, son of a bitch must pay. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, D&D &D mattress company. Like, where is that? You got to find this number for me. Uh, and then he finally gets on the horn with the, the ringleader, which is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Does he even have a name, that character? Not that I know of, but maybe he does just in the credits, but what a terrific scene. I don't know if you noticed the way it was shot, which is Sandler's pacing back and forth and he's pacing back and forth and they seamlessly cut between both of them where it's just, they're like moving in like a fluid motion. Uh, that was beautiful. That was, that was great. I love that. And, and Hoffman comes and just is why he's, was so amazing. Like that man was just incredible. He just commandeers this whole scene in a comedic yet serious way, which is Hoffman was so good at that. He was so good at being jokey and then like so downright serious at the same time. So they find out where this is, this little mattress store in Provo, Utah and Mormon land over there. Uh, and he goes and it looks like they're going to like get down to some fisticuffs. And, you know, I was giggling at that scene. I mean, he's getting a haircut and he, he's like, ow, Ow. <laughs> right. This girl's just like like being really rough cutting his hair. And like it's just like this weird little moment. But you think they're going to get right down to it. And it's like the opposite of that. So I think at this point, the character arc's almost full circle or come complete. There's one little piece still left, still left or still missing. He left Lena in the hospital to go take care of this. So we're not quite there. 
But he has to definitely put out this fire before he can I think in terms kindle of, the romantic flames with her, right? I think in terms of his violent outbursts, I, this is like from the opening of him kicking three uh, bay doors to this where the natural instinct in that instance would be to pummel Philip Seymour Hoffman. And they just have like an exchange of words. He squares off and say, tell me we're good or that's it. And Philip Seymour Hoffman says, did you call the cops? And he says, nope. And so you can see Philip Seymour Hoffman's character thinking, man, I might be able to get away with what's theft, like strong arming someone. Blackmail. Right, exactly. And so he acquiesces. And then Barry leaves and Philip Seymour Hoffman's character has got to get one last word in. And he stops, turns around. I love that he's still carrying the phone from his apartment this whole time too. (laughs) Yes, and he's ready to drop the hammer. And he says, oh, no, we're good. We're good. We're good. But you know what he said? What's great? Mm-hmm. I think it's the sound. And it is, I have so much strength inside of me mm-hmm. that you don't want to mess with me on this because if you do, it's going to power me and I'm going to kick your ass. Yeah, it's like a nice threat. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, he's trying to play like poker face with him. and be Like, I can't break because I'll show weakness. But kind of takes it all in, you know what I mean? And he's like, you came all the way here to tell me that. <laughs> Barry's found a greater purpose. Mm-hmm. It's good. Yeah, it's good and it's simple. I mean, this is the, the end goal for him. and it, His woman. And I love it. He, he's important to someone. But he's got to oh. go He's got to go make amends with that because he's almost messed it all up. <laughs> so well said. So he goes back to Lena's apartment. She's been discharged from the hospital. And she's, it seems a little peeved at him. But she doesn't understand why he left. And he really just lets it go. I called a sex hotline. They wanted some money. They, they're the ones who attacked us. I have enough frequent flyer miles to fly. six. To, all, all, I just need six to eight weeks. And I can fly anywhere with you. And it's it's really nice, you know what I mean? It's it's that kind of like nice embrace, and it really reminded me of those romantic comedies of the Howard Hawks era of just like whether it was the music or the embrace, it really felt like one of those plot lines wrapping up at the end of those films. Final hurdle before we get this across the finish line is the reconnecting with said ex girlfriend, hopefully not Lena. Okay, I think we have put to bed the threat posed by the sex workers and their mm-hmm. gang of thugs. Yeah. And he shows up at her door carrying that piano, mm-hmm. the harmonium. <laughs> and you're pretty sure he's going to give it to her, right? Well, that's strange because he takes it with him, takes it to the door, but then they take it back to the, the shop at the end because that's where the last scene is, is in the... I think it's for protection. Yeah. I think he's using it to protect himself. That's good. I don't have proof on that. But he explains to her, this is what happened. This is why I had to do this. And I have a million frequent flyer miles that I'm about to come into possession of in six to eight weeks. If you can just give me then, then I can travel with you wherever you want to go. That's not the most ambitious per jobs. I think that's not the best sales pitch he could give her. I'm not going to make a ton of money, but I'm going to have a ton of frequent flyer miles. But he's super apologetic in the way he does it because he says that about three times. Really and, coming back around to it. And to her credit, or her character's credit, she says, you left me at the hospital. Mm-hmm. That can't happen. Mm-hmm. And when she says that can't happen, she's not talking about how he's going to handle her at the hospital. What she's talking about is, you can't leave me like that when I'm in trouble. You have to make the commitment. Mm-hmm. 
And that's also a bit of his issue as well. Like she's not putting him on blast in an angry, but she's saying, you kind of need to step it up here too, man. Like I'll Mm -hmm. go this extra mile for you, but you got to show me that there's some reciprocation of those efforts. Exactly. And I think he basically says yes. And how do we know? Let's Mm -hmm. talk about the last scene. Yeah. The, yeah, we, so we go back to his little shop and he's at the harmonium again Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's, it looks like he's trying to like, you know, come up with something, play something along. And then, uh, yeah. And then like, what's exactly her last line? I don't want to butcher it. I don't, are you playing? Oh no. I don't even remember. I'm going to pull it up here because it's, it's important. Cause she comes up and embraces him and I say, what next? I don't even remember. It's okay. I got, I got it right here. Yeah, so this is a, a scene that's shot similarly to the one that's they're meeting in Hawaii mm-hmm. with the very heavy shadowed effect in the light through the door behind them. So she goes and walk up behind him as he's trying to figure out the keys and how that works and her line is. So here we go. So here we go. Yes. And yeah, it's like the start of like a new adventure. Whatever this is going to be or turn into starts from this moment going forward. And then we fade to black. I mean, the film doesn't need to stick around for the next chapter of Barry and, and Lena. I mean, this is, this is what it's supposed to be. And I like that it gets out, gets out soon and early. And this ain't a two hour and 45 minute PTA epic or three hours in the Magnolia spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has to be his shortest movie, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. I don't know the, cause the master's long and hair vice is too long and heart aids probably, just under two hours or just a little over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we fade to black. Uh, and that's kind of a wrap on the film. And Paul Thomas, do you have anything else you want to say about this particular film? Or When it came out in 2002, I remember seeing it and being a bit perplexed. Not that it was a bad film, but seeing Sandler and that sort of role was very unfamiliar at the time. This is the first time he'd sort of stepped out of the genre pieces that we'd all known him to do. And I remember leaving that with a lot of thoughts about that harmonium and not quite being able to decode it. And, but like not a a bad feeling about this film, just Mm -hmm. not one that I'm not sure of upon second viewing all most, if not all of those theories or worries or problems I had have been cleared up. And this was a really enjoyable rewatch 20 years later. Has, I can't believe this film's 20 years old. Also. I know, right? My God. I had a $25 million budget. It barely made $24 million, yeah. so it barely broke even. Uh, in that rewatch and you enjoying it a whole lot more, has doing this cask around him and seeing three films like three consecutive weeks kind of helped in, in that kind of assessment? Oh, yeah. Because I think so. I feel like when I really get in with something, like we got in with Godzilla, like I can really feed around for like what they're going for in totality. Yeah. And you really get to see... It was interesting the way we decided to do it because we got to see early Anderson and then later more refined with There Will Be Blood. And then this is kind of in the middle Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of like what he was aiming for uh, with with this particular film. It's three really solid entries Mm -hmm. and having the frame of reference in three consecutive weeks absolutely helped. If this had been a one-off. Yeah. I don't know. Might be a different conversation we're having today. Sure. And I wonder, I wonder if this has any kind of influence too, because I know around this time he met actress uh, Maya Rudolph 
uh, from SNL mm-hmm. and Bridesmaids and all those films. And they've been together since then. They have four kids together. I didn't know that. You didn't know that? Yeah. They're, they're, I don't think they're married. They just, they're partners. But since this, around this period here, 2002. So I wonder if this film partially influenced, you know, that type of courtship that he had with her. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or if she had any say in Adam Sandler as kind of from the SNL family, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Isn't Maya Rudolph also Minnie Ripperton's daughter? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Crazy when we, we, when you do a deep dive and you find out all these interesting anecdotes about people and films and stuff. That's my favorite thing. I love finding out things I never like knew before. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your favorite tasting note of the uh, Punch Drunk Love? Oh, I think it's probably the phone conversation that he has with his sister in Hawaii. I found myself really pulling for his character to figure it out. And that moment when he's finally able to stand up for himself and just say, look, man, I'm asking this one thing and by God, you're going to give it to me. For a guy that's just been a tire tread the whole time Mm -hmm. was very redeeming moment. That's what I'm going to go with. How about you? I think I got to go with this like discernible Popeye moment that we discovered because I don't know whether to call it homage or imitation or ripoff or there's something going on there. But I love when films can essentially redo the scene that happens in the the film it's taking from and do it better. You know what I mean? It, I think it under, maybe Paul Thomas Anderson understands Popeye more than Robert Altman and crew ever could. You know what I yeah, mean? Maybe. So I just thought that was interesting, and it was a weird discovery for both of us that we were able to kind of piece that all together. That was wild. So yeah, that was <laughs> that was wild. That was my favorite. That was my favorite tasting note. What is the? Oh my god! We need to polish off the, and we're almost done here of the Russell's Reserve Ten Year Whiskey. Uh, what do you think of this so far? That's been a really good. Did you bottle. like this one? Oh yeah, I sure. I did. think I think I told you the last time we did Russell's was Russell's Rye, and it mm-hmm. was Basic Instinct, Serenity, and Double Indemnity. So it's been two plus years since we've done Russell's Reserve. It's been a good choice. Excellent. But what's your oh my god moment of this film? The quiet space after he destroys the bathroom in the restaurant mm-hmm. after he's removed, as they're walking down the street to his car. You're just praying to God that he's not going to screw this up so much that she decides to just hail a taxi and tell him to forget it. A lot of that is due to her strength as a person and her pursuits of this guy, which other than the picture her friend showed her, we don't really know why she likes him that much because there really isn't that much there at this point. She uncovers it, uncovers that gym, bup, bup, bup. <laughs> but uh, again, heavy, heavy soundtrack, some traffic going by. Mm -hmm. You can't tell what's going on in his head, but even then he's kind of twitchy and looking awkwardly around and can't tell whether he should look at her. Cause if he keeps looking at her, maybe she's going to like frown and he's going to know what it is. But if he doesn't acknowledge her, then he seems rude. There's this very just awkward moment between the two of them. And I was really uncomfortable as they were walking to his car. Excellent. Comfortable. Good choice. Yours. Mine will probably be that when it's when they're trying to sell off the, plungers to the vegas casinos right it's pretty funny yeah and he's testing one and it shatters in front of them and then he's getting like four calls from his sister and he's back and forth like the palpable 
awkwardness of that whole sequence was just enough to like make me almost cringe. It was almost like cringe humor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, that was pretty uncomfortable for me. I'd, I'd go to the bottle after a scene like that, after a day at work like that, Jesus Christ. This one has an unshatterable handle. <laughs> Shatters and rice goes everywhere. <laughs> oh gosh. That'd be so embarrassing. I would, like those guys should have just walked at that point. That would have been pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's the master distiller on punch drunk love? I think it's, Adam Sandler, uh, pretty brave role for him to take and delivered really, really well. Um, I think you said this was a better role than the one in Uncut Gems, and I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think Uncut Gems is number two for me. Yeah, It's just such a different, brave space because at this point, everybody knew kind of what Sandler was yeah, and he, what to expect. Like as, as Taika Waititi said, one of those movies. Mm-hmm. This is not one of those movies. Yeah. And he is really, really good at awkward. Yeah, he's mine too. I mean, it's, uh, you use the word brave. It's brave to go out of your typecast of what you're known for and take a chance on something like, and it didn't pay off financially at least, but at least it was something that you wanted to do and you're all in and you were good at being all in. You know what I mean? I got to give it to him too. I mean, it was, I was just fixated on watching him from beginning to end which was a, a great feeling. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's some Adam Sandler films that, like I said, I do like for comedic value. And there's some that I will never watch Jack and Jill. I mean, that that's got to be one of the worst movies ever made. It's just mm-hmm. so silly. But uh, this, this was such a treat uh, to, to kind of dive into this. How are you going to rate and grade punch drunk love our rating system? We have rock gut. Well, call single barrel and top shelf. You going three for three, Matt. What are you doing over here? I am. Okay. It's not the best of Thomas Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, but there's a lot of really good in Paul Thomas Anderson, and the last three weeks have proved that. This is a really good movie. This is top shelf. Uh, Weird that still manages to finish up a story is tough to pull off. It's short and contained and out of typecast and spec'd, so there's that piece too, Mm -hmm. not adapted, spec'd as far as I know. Um, yeah, man, this is, this is a really, really good rewatch. Mm-hmm. And I might go so far as to say of the films that I've watched once and rewatched, this might be the best one we've done on the show so far. I don't have the list in front of me, but to like check out again, get back into again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't recommend this film highly enough for yeah. everybody out there. Uh, I had some conversations with some people that told me there's no way they were ever going to sit through boogie nights just cause it was so off putting. That's yeah. fair. Um, this isn't off-putting. This is really interesting. I mean, it, it, it it's visually and sound-wise off-putting, but that's the point. I mean, you're supposed to be in this flurry of a headspace that is Barry Egan, and the film does a masterful job at doing that. It's weird. It's sweet. Mm-hmm. It's sentimental. And here's the key one. It's complete. Yeah. Top shelf. Yeah, beginning, middle, and an end. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, th- I think I'm... I think I'm probably going to line in here at a single barrel, probably single barrel minus esque. This is a great film in Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography, a missing film mm-hmm. in his filmography. We're going to talk about that here in a second, but I can't believe I hadn't seen this uh, prior to this. You know, sometimes just films pass you by or you never get to them or they sit in my Netflix queue for years. We don't even need to go into what's on my Netflix queue right now, but uh, this was great. I'm glad we added this. 
uh, I would love to, we'll talk about Magnolia one of these days, but this was great to do just something fresh, raw, come in here, talk about it. Cause I do that to you all the time. It mm-hmm. seems like, uh, but no, this was great. I mean, to couple this with boogie nights, there will be blood. And, and now this, like that's, that's three hell of a films. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And we're not even throwing Magnolia into that. And maybe like, you know, you know, I was, I was off on, you know, Phantom Thread and The Master, but I'm willing to give those ones a second go. It's going to be tough because those were some kind of hard watches for me, but I think there's a lot of really good things about Paul Thomas Anderson as a director. He seems to work really good with actors, bringing the best out of them, whether that's Mark Wahlberg, Daniel Day-Lewis, Adam Sandler, and he's a really good writer. I mean, mm-hmm. like these little B subplots in this film are so into the, the coupon scam and then the sex hotline scam are so interesting. They keep the film on like on the gas, like throughout the entire runtime that can't be understated. That's writing. I mean, that's just a good script there. So he's really in control of his craft and I am really looking forward to this next one, especially since he's kind of missed the mark in the last couple films with me personally. I know those films have their fans out there, but uh, we might have to come back to Paul Thomas Anderson when soggy bottoms comes out this Christmas. I'm going to give you a choice. Okay. You can be A or B at this point. Oh, God. Whose career would you rather have? Uh, <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson's career right now or Wes Anderson's career right now? Oh, gosh. That's too very... Well, Wes Anderson's a weird filmmaking guy as well. And mostly shitty for about the past decade, in my opinion, but okay. Wes Anderson? Terrible. I, I liked Grand Budapest Hotel and, and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Ugh. Well, I liked Isle of Dogs. Okay, so I like his films, but I you know I don't like love them. Like he, I'm not like a... I wouldn't call myself like a Wes Anderson head. Like, you know, the directors I like. I like Nolan, Denny Villanueva, uh, really big into Ari Aster right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'll throw Jordan Peele in there uh, also. Sure. That's the horror side of me. But I'm, I, I like his films, but I'm like worship at the altar of Wes Anderson. I would almost, I don't know. They're, they're, it's it's going to be close because I would almost say Anderson because I've liked a little bit more of his later work, whereas I've probably been. Wes or Paul? Uh, you said Anderson. Wes Anderson. Yeah. That's a great way to answer. I'll take Anderson's career. That's I'll a take smart Anderson. answer. Yeah. <laughs> Just because I've probably been off the, what's the term? Off the wagon mm-hmm. with Paul Thomas Anderson since There Will Be Blood, which mm-hmm. is 2007. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a little bit more there to to play with. Okay. That's interesting. That, that's uh, that's wild. I mean, Paul, I think Paul uh, Wes Anderson's made some pretty pretty decent flicks there. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums and... Uh, I'll give you Bottle Rocket and Royal Tenet Bombs, and I guess Life Aquatic is tolerable, but, man, that's a long time ago. Do you like Rushmore? No. Is it Bill Murray? Yes. Too much Bill Murray? Yeah. What's the other one he did? We on? shut off Grand Budapest Hotel after 40 minutes. I'm like, I, there's, I would literally rather go garden than watch that fucking film. I don't know what, what it was about that, that I really just <sighs> snuck into that, and I just really had a, a fun time watching that. Uh, but... Great question. Uh, that's we'll, we'll, Let's see what pops up here in our nightcap um, as we talk about some more directors. My name should be trouble. My name should be woe. For trouble and harm. All righty. So thinking about, you know, gosh, I keep wanting to say Wes Anderson. Now you confused me, man. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. And I hadn't seen this film uh, in his filmography. My nightcap question to you is 
what other director, any director, Hitchcock, Scorsese, Spielberg, that uh, has just a prominent film director who's an entry in his filmography that has just passed you by up until this time? The prominent word hung me up because I had to come up with, is this really a prominent director or just a movie? So I want to do an honorable mention, and then I'm sure you'll have an honorable mention because after you all, you are you, and then I'll give you my answer answers. Okay. I can't say Mel Gibson is a prominent director, but if he's prominent, you're ready for this. It's going to freak you out. Did you know I've never seen Braveheart? Oh, really? I've never seen Braveheart. Oh, wow. So there you go. Well, if we ever decide to do, because imagine a cask like this, because this could be fun because, you know, the whole epic space of epic filmmaking is kind of dead, but like it kind of made a resurgence in the 90s, like that movie, Gladiator, and we'll find another one in there uh, to kind of have, that could be, that could be fun. Yeah. Just like big scale filmmaking. Oh, interesting. I know. Can you believe that? Yeah. I've seen some pieces of it a lot. Mm -hmm. I've never sat down and just burned the whole film. Well, you got to chuck up an afternoon for that one. <laughs> and I know it's a good movie and I know I would love it. Yeah. I There's just so many things to watch and that's so old. I don't know. I, just, I think that's, you just said it. There's so many things to watch and I know I should see it. I know I should check it out, but I'm going to go watch Halloween for the hundred of time. Like I, I fall into that trap a lot. I watch it. I do a lot of rewatch of things I like. I even kind of like the, it's not really sword and sandals, but I like that sort of sword and sandals historical, I, I don't know. Yeah. I'll give you an honorable mention if you want to take it. Uh, I've seen probably just about everything in Martin Scorsese's filmography, but I have not seen Bringing Out the Dead with Nicolas Cage. Oh, it's good. Or Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore with Ellen Burstyn. Wow. But I've seen everything else. Literally, I've seen Silence, his uh, Jesuit priest film, which was his passion project for decades, apparently, and it was so boring. Mm. Uh, but I haven't seen those two. So those are my those are two honorable mentions. Okay. Yeah. One more honorable mention and then my answer answer. Okay. You brought him up earlier. It's Truffaut. Okay. I've never seen 500 Blows. Mm. So that's one. That's interesting. That's the first part of like a series, actually. Yep. But my answer answer okay. is Spielberg. Ready for this? This is on the same level of Braveheart. Ooh. I've never seen Schindler's List. Really? <gasps> I know I'm going to have to turn in my rice smile card here right now, aren't Ooh. I? I've never seen that film. Here's the thing. I'm never going to. And I will not see that film. Yeah, I would say, I would say you should see it. But mm-hmm. if you do see it, you're only going to watch it once mm-hmm. because it's, it's an off-putting movie, but like so powerful at the same time, if that makes sense. Like it's the message is there, but the brutality is unbelievable. I get it, man. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, yeah and I'm very familiar with that <laughs> mm-hmm. period of history and all of that. And there's been no shortage of Holocaust or Nazi stories in my film going experience. Mm-hmm. Before I answered this, mm-hmm. I gave it some thought. And I think you know, one of the the most robust discussions that's ever been had on this podcast was over in Glorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of what I don't like about that film mm-hmm. is why I haven't seen that movie. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that conversation that you and I had that day stems from just how off-putting, and I'm not trying to be Pollyanna on a no, yeah. box, like holier than thou, waving my virtue flag. I'm not doing that. <laughs> no, but, yeah. There's just something about that that is a hard. It's it's not, not only is it not interesting, it's not interesting and it's off putting. And I don't care how well it's done. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Well, it is. It's and you know what? You kind of makes it 
even more like that is the fact that it is done in black and white. I don't know what the black and white does, but it makes it even more grim and morose. So, uh, yeah, I don't blame you for kind of staying away from it. But if it ever comes across, uh, you'll watch it one time and you'll be like, I'm I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not, that's not true. How old's that film? 25 years? <sighs> 1993. It's I'm never going to see that film. Yeah. At this point, there's so much to watch. I probably will never see either of the, I'll probably watch 500 blows at some point. Cause I actually do feel like there's an interest there for me. And I love Truffaut when he's good. That'd be, that'd be a great one to watch. That'd be, yeah, I'd watch that with you. All right. I'm dying to hear you what you got. Um, so Stanley Kubrick. Oh no. I've seen just about everything. Full metal jacket, eyes wide shut at too young of an age. And of course the shining and, uh, Strange Love and what's uh, Clockwork Orange and Space Odyssey, but the one I haven't the, the one I've seen the Killers, uh, the one I haven't seen and it's on HBO Max now, so I'm actually going to fulfill my quest maybe later this week. I've never seen Lolita. Oh uh, yeah, so I think I just I need to check that box. James Mason and Shelley Winters, buckle up, buddy. Yeah, so I I really need to kind of just check that out and kind of see what that's all. About. I know what it is about. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I think that's the, the last remaining one of Kubrick that I've never seen. So it's on HBO Max right now. I'm going to get that done. You're going to love it. Mm-hmm. That's a great film. I've even seen Barry Lyndon. I mean, that, that, you know, like, mm. that's, like, that's such an interesting movie. It's so well made, but like, it's, it's not for everybody because it's pretty boring. But it's uh, the natural candlelight. Like, it's, Kubrick was, is just such a, an anomaly for me between... Strange Love and then Space Odyssey, and he has an obvious technical craft of special effects to then adapt King's The Shining, which I think's a good is my favorite movie of his, but the fans of King hate it because it's not the book. Mm-hmm. And then to do full metal and then take a break until Eyes Wide Shut and then and then he died. I mean, the guy would take his time to get to something and would put all of it. I mean, we've talked about Napoleon, mm-hmm. the film that never happened. Right. Uh so that's gonna be my choice, but I think if you survived the killers, you're going to love Lolita. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the killers is one of the driest, yeah. slowest films of all time. Yeah. Yeah. But it was an interesting, yeah. Cause I've seen most of Hitchcock. It's good. Uh, there was a few in there that I haven't seen, but not like really worth It's like a lot of his silent films. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Jamaica Inn and some of those films, right. like I'm not going to, that's not going to be my conversation, No. but I've seen like, like the f- 1940 to like frenzy. I've seen all of that. Mm-hmm. So the Good choice. Yeah, that's yeah. It was an interesting conversation. I was like, because sometimes things just slip by us, and we just like don't find a way to watch them unless we force ourselves to watch them. Mm-hmm. We do them on a podcast, so to speak. Yeah, do them on a podcast. Matt, this has been a lot of fun. I am actually so glad. Like when, because like when we come up with these schedules, you know, I'll take a crack, and then Matt will come up with some stuff, and we'll kind of go back and forth. And I was like, I did not know what we were gonna do for this period. So when you came, and you're like. You want to do Paul Thomas Anderson? I was like, sign me up because a I love these directors cast because we've done De Palma, Cronenberg, uh, and William Friedkin, and now Paul Thomas Anderson. Like I don't know who's next. If it's Billy Wilder or De Palma again, or a Carpenter or Scorsese. I said Scorsese eighties last week. There's so many directors we could just kind of really get in the weeds with and just kind of have the same experience. So we could do Hitchcock and Marnie. We could do Hitchcock like four more times yeah. <laughs> and even Spielberg. And like, there's so many things we could do for Francis Ford Coppola, uh, yeah. Denny Villanueva. We, we talked about doing a Nolan cask like that. That's coming. That's coming. Uh, but 
this has been, I'm so glad you recommended this. So this oh, is thanks. a cheers to you. This is one of the best suggestions that you, that you could have brought to this, this cask. I loved it so much. Thanks. It was and, a lot of fun. And you're wearing it too. I so am. Yeah. We're going to snap a picture of that, but coming up is a cask that maybe me and you and I have wanted to cover since the beginning of this show. Uh, um, do you want to announce it? I'll let you. I'll let you announce what's coming in the next four weeks. No, I'm going to give it to you. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, so coming up, starting next week, it's a four week cask leading up to the June fourth release of "The Devil Made Me Do It." What the series is? The Conjuring universe. We're going to start with the first film, The Conjuring from 2013, I believe. Ed and Lorraine Warren, this is going to be a lot of fun. This is the first film that started a whole plethora. And honestly, if we kind of label it, I think it's 10 films deep now. Wow. Three Annabelle films, three Conjuring films, a nun and a La Llorona. Uh, mm-hmm. It's close to 10. It might be eight or it might be 10, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's a, a new franchise that has just kind of come up from here. It's horror. It's James Wan. But it's we get to start with this first one and talk about why it is so special and how it got to be a franchise. The oft and aforementioned basement scene in this first one, we're finally going to get a chance to break down and all of the pieces on how you structure franchise, I think, well. There's been Mm -hmm. some misses, but the structure on how you set this up is genius. Pretty gold, yeah. Yeah, yep. we'll talk about the real Ed and Lorraine Warren because, oh, Jesus Christ. What a mess. <laughs> what a mess. Yep. We'll talk about these real cases, but then it's a time to talk about horror, and this is a space that we're just so comfortable in. I mean, it's like being in, like, a pool of pudding. I mean, we're just like, yeah. <laughs> we're just like, yeah, just like, <laughs> this, is, this, is where we, this is where we belong. So this is going to be so much fun. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to this third entry. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to be good, but I'm excited to see it. I'll yep. tell you that. Uh, and there's a film in here that you haven't seen actually, and we're actually we'll do that one together. So right, not going to tell you what that is, but it's a part of this universe. Can't wait. Excellent. So cheers, cheers, Jesse. Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram, or uh, we're doing a lot of fun stuff on Patreon right now. Patreon.com/slash Rice Smile Films. We just did the Deep Blue Sea watch along, which was a hoot. If you ever want to know about how Matt and I used to. Or tried to sneak into R-rated movies. You're going to hear all about it and all about these actors. Like it was that was such a, a fun episode. Like I actually went and watched Deep Blue Sea with it because mm-hmm. I wanted to hear it. And what? Oh no! I had a great time just hearing myself while watching the watching the movie. But it was it was such a fun like just little watch along. So you had that there, and then Training Day coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, and then we're going to hit up some of our favorite uh, TV show pilots on the top shelf tier. What? One of the things we're doing on the Patreon is really trying to give a bit of a different menu item. And mm. I think that watch along certainly presents that. That is not hard film breakdown like we did today. Although there is that also included and training day is going to be the one that's up next. Mm. And boy, I think I'm close to having a kind of a big announcement on that. Okay. We'll get to that. Sweet. Um, that will be fun. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, from pilots to television to the watch along, uh, it's just more of the same. And we tried to make that as friendly a price point for a ton of content. Probably yeah. almost too much, to be honest with you. <laughs> too much. You guys are spoiled. Yeah. No, nah, just kidding. We love doing it. We do. Uh, but also hit up tpublic.com for any of our merch. I think that's all the the business items. So, Yep. Hey. Rocking the public one that'll be on the, in the socials this week. You'll see it. It's Excellent. All righty. For real this time. Cheers. Cheers. I got to get going. I got to go tune up my uh, harmonium so I can go play a jaunty little tune there. But you know it's going to be the theme to Halloween. 
<laughs> just so happen to have duct tape in my truck too. Oh, okay, you can help we me out with that. Set. Perfect. We'll see you all next week for a spooky good time. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. For more Rye Smile content, go to patreon.com slash Films for exclusive bonus episodes, plus feature-length watch-along commentaries on your favorite movies and TV show recap episodes covering the best from the small screen. For Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Punch Drunk Love is property of Sony Pictures releasing Columbia Pictures, Revolution Studios, and New Line Cinema, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. I would say that's that, Mattress Man. You came all the way from LA to tell me this. Yes, I did.